Welcome back to season three of Journeys of Faith. As you know, we're dedicating this season to the election cycle. We'll be speaking with 2020 candidates and other political figures about how their faith influences who they are and how they think. He's the only African-American Republican in the Senate, which he says can make his life a little uncomfortable. Our next guest is Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina and a close ally of President Trump. On this episode, Senator Scott joins us on the phone from his office on Capitol Hill, right before he's set to meet with the president. He discusses how heavily Trump leans on him when it comes to racial issues, whether or not he thinks the president is racist. And as he's quoting Bible scriptures, Scott opens up about one day trading politics for the pulpit. Here's Senator Tim Scott from D.C. Joining us now is Senator Tim Scott from his office on Capitol Hill. Senator, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely, Paula. Good to be with you. Thank you for the invite. Of course. Uh, so honored to be talking to you, Senator. And we want to really dig in uh, your own personal faith journey and how that influences person and policy, how it's um, been instrumental in the man that you've become today and instrumental in how you govern there from Capitol Hill. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. I, I was reading your parents were divorced when you were really young. Your mother moved you and your brothers back to her native South Carolina. That's where you subsequently grew up. You lived with your yes. grandparents. And she was working double shifts as a nursing assistant and barely making ends meet. Was religion yes. at that point something that your mother turned to to help get her through? Was there even time for religion as you guys struggled? Well, I, th I think there's always time for faith, but mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that my mother had a faith consciousness when we first moved back. My grandmother certainly did. Um, I oftentimes look at the second book of Timothy, the first chapter, and it talks about how uh, Timothy's grandmother and mother, uh, I think it was Eunice and Lois, uh, led him to a faith journey. And in many ways, my grandmother, the matriarch of the family at that time, was the spiritual uh, leader and heavyweight in the family. My mother I think really got there in earnest when I was about 15, 16, 17. Mm -hmm. So that okay. would have been about 10 years after we moved back to South Carolina. But I certainly think that my grandmother's prayers played a significant role in the development of our consciousness around faith. And whether you wanted to go to church or not, you, because you didn't have a choice. You didn't have a choice. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just the way it was. Yes. It wasn't even a consideration. Right. Whether you believed or not, you were going. And I, I am thankful that, uh, we went either way. Mm -hmm. You you would describe yourself as a Christian, as an evangelical. Was there a moment that you said, I believe in God? This is what I believe? Did you have your aha moment? You know, uh, I'm not sure that I, I, I had, certainly had an aha or an epiphany. For me, I, I think it when I was 11 years old, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, that changed my destination for eternity, but I'm not sure that I actually made him my Lord until about... 18 years old, I was on a football scholarship at Presbyterian College and uh, at an FCA meeting, Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting on t September 22nd, there about 1983, I made him the Lord of my life as well. And the difference for me is that, uh, you know, salvation or destination is really important, but lordship is how you live while you're here. And uh, in many ways, I think as a young kid looking for attention, uh, feeling a sense of loneliness and abandonment. I became a class clown and or, or very good on a football field or very good in student government. But what I was looking for was how to fill a hole in my soul. And that did not really happen until 
I was at Presbyterian College uh, at an FCA meeting where I found the father that I was looking for mm. in the form of a heavenly father that I could read about and not just learn about who he is, but who I am through him. And I think it's Galatians 3.29 that talks about being adopted into the family. And for me, that was an important uh, epiphany that I knew who I was because I understood who he is. And for me, that became a, uh, has been a lifelong journey of, uh, of understanding and appreciating the powerful mm-hmm. impact that having a father define you uh, can be in a young man's life. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned the FCA meeting, and you did say Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and that's a, a gathering. I'm familiar with it, but for those that aren't, it's a gathering for athletes of like of like mindedness. But you went to college, um, your freshman year at Presbyterian College. That that was a, a big moment for you. But you thought that you were going to eventually land in the NFL. You were a pretty prolific high school player. You had big dreams of going to the NFL. Did you not? I, I did, especially in high school, less than college. You know, um, my story is a story that's probably shared by by many athletes and certainly football players because injuries are such a part of the game nowadays. But back in my junior year in high school, I was probably averaging six and a half yards a carry. You can or something go and brag like on just... yourself right now, Senator. Come on, you can you can live in those glory days. It's all right. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to get stuck there. So <laughs> I'm hoping the glory days are coming, not in the past, but. Those were really exciting years for me, my junior year. But my senior year, I think it was August 27th, I think it was 1982, I had driven my mom downtown to work, which was about 40 minutes from where we were living, and I was on my way back, and I fell asleep driving my mom's brand-new 1982 Toyota Corolla hatchback down the interstate uh, at about 70 miles an hour. I wasn't asleep for very long, probably 15 seconds, but 15 seconds is an eternity on an interstate when your foot's on the gas pedal. And I, I, I unfortunately slammed on the brakes and jerked the steering wheel at the same time, which set my car flipping back into traffic, through traffic. So I had oh, crossed no. every lane of traffic, gone through the windshield, came back in the car, uh, broke, my, uh, broke my ankle along the way, glass in my backside and in my back. It was just a horrific accident uh, entering into my senior year of football. And I missed seven weeks of my senior football season. And that's and crucial that, in terms of scouting, development, absolutely. college scholarships. You got it. And uh, so my football dreams probably were over then. I, mm. I, I probably knew it. I didn't give up on them. I certainly got a small football scholarship uh, to Presbyterian College. But at that point, I had lost some of the desire that it takes to be prolific. And a prolific athlete it takes a 100% focus. And I think For me, the good Lord blessed me. He didn't cause the accident, but as a part of the accident, I'm a big believer that Romans 8, 28 reminds us that all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. So for me, the accident was the worst thing ever, but it became the point of pivoting towards leadership, uh, scholarship, and towards making a difference Mm -hmm. by putting others before myself. Because up until that point, my dreams and my ambition were driven by me, myself, and my mama, you know, trying to find a way to get her out of poverty and get yeah. me into a more powerful position. And after the accident, it took me still almost another year before I accepted the Lord. You talked about 
finally discovering that father that you didn't have in your life, but you did yes. have a pretty influential male in your life. I was reading a little bit about your story in Max Licato's new book called How Happiness Happens, and he yes. documents your life, um, and I'm just going to read you a quick excerpt. And it says, Tim served popcorn at the local movie theater. During his break, he would hurry across the street to a fast food restaurant, which was Chick-fil-A, and get fries and water. John Moniz owned the facility. He noticed the repeat customer and asked him why he wasn't buying more food. Tim told him he couldn't afford it. And the book goes on to just say you struck up a friendship and you learned so much from Tim. Uh, he learned that you were failing several classes at school. What role did John play? It was a significant role, though not a not a consistent role. He was not there weekly or daily. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was positive, powerful interactions that happened probably a dozen times over you know four four years. But those times were driven by a sense of hope. And I'm not sure if you've ever been hopeless. Uh, I certainly have. Someone who helps to encourage and inspire hope in your in your future, and he provided that in just small increments, but they were like seed form, and mm-hmm. so through time those seeds grew. And the second thing he provided was reminding me that the best was yet to come, reminding me that anyone from anywhere at any time mm. can change the circumstance of their future by what they do today. And so uh, I can't overemphasize the powerful impact that he had to your listeners, I would tell them that being a mentor to a young person doesn't require you to be there every day, every hour, every week, but it requires you to be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable. And John, he was those things. And part of what John taught me before I had the car accident, almost two years, he taught me, you always have to have a backup plan. Don't surrender. Don't give up on your dreams of playing playing the NFL. Don't give up on going to a big college. Mm -hmm. He said, but have a backup plan. And one of the things he taught me was that having a job was a good thing, but being a job creator was a better thing. Mm. And he wanted me to be someone who thought of thinking and entrepreneurship as necessary towers in my life to uh, pushed me forward aggressively mm-hmm. into a field of owning my own business and having employees, not just being an employee. Yeah, it, it sounds like he had a profound impact on your politics, how you see the world, but also it just did. giving you giving you that advice uh, about having a backup plan. If the NFL yes. doesn't work out, if football doesn't work out, you've also toyed with the idea of becoming a pastor. I have. Well, well yeah, definitely a minister. I think a pastor is too high of a calling for me. <laughs> I can't imagine uh, having the responsibility of a flock. I would love to spend quality time sharing, uh, being, being a purveyor of hope to this world and, frankly, to our nation, because there are so many opportunities that we miss because we don't see ourselves mm-hmm. the way that the good Lord does. Mm-hmm. So the thing mm-hmm. I've tried to do is to remind those of us who have suffered from low self-esteem, those of us who have been lost in the wilderness, those of us who felt fatherless at some point in our lives, those of us who felt hopeless, that sometimes it's how we see ourselves that has to change so that we see the world differently and the world responds to us differently. But I do think we we have within ourselves uh, the the challenge to greatness, Yeah. Uh, whatever that means for each of our lives. Sounds like you, you want to be an evangelist. Yes, ma'am. That's my. That's your goal. That's what you want to do after politics. 
I mean, I, I'm not sure if I would do it full time as a, in the ministry, but an evangelist, whether I'm paid to do it or if I do it for free, sometimes you got to be good for nothing. So <laughs> literally, I'm happy to do it any way I can. I want to go back. Um, I didn't let you finish. You were saying how instrumental John was in terms of how you see the world in regards to governing and policy. Can you talk about that impact that he had on you? Yes, ma'am. I, I think, you know, John taught me the importance of entrepreneurship, which from a, a policy standpoint, you typically find yourself center right when you are, when your conviction is that the private sector is a job creating and job creation engine. Second thing he, we had a lot of discussion around is this notion of individual responsibility. He really did help me understand, don't blame your mom because she's working long hours or your father because he's not around. You don't really understand the the predicaments of, of adults yet, but you can be responsible for yourself. If you see a problem in the mirror because it's you, that means that you you are equipped to take that problem and find a promise. And that, that was good advice for a kid mm-hmm. that was struggling. Oh yeah. He said he said that obstacles are necessary to find your opportunities. It's kind of silly maybe, but for me it was like it was like a, a paradigm shifting concept mm-hmm. that within me lies the answers for life. Um, and then finally, he, he really did teach me that your tragedies can become your triumph. And the one thing I will say is that the longer I live, the more I understand that what the good Lord has done for me is he's allowed me to go through certain challenges so that I can share with people who may be coming towards those same challenges, ways to A, avert it, B, endure it, and C, succeed through it. So I don't know that that the good Lord uh, wastes any negative circumstance and or challenge you go through. The real question is, how do you have the, the, the willingness to harness the harder times of your life mm-hmm. in order to serve other people with it? Don't go anywhere. A quick break, and we'll be right back. There are a lot of superlatives that get attached to your name. You're the first African-American senator from the South since Reconstruction. You're the only African-American to ever serve in both chambers of Congress. You're one of only three African-American senators that are currently serving. You're certainly the only Republican senator. Um, and you're the most prominent African-American Republican in the country at a time when tensions are really high. Many are accusing the president and the Republicans for the current environment. How difficult of a spot does this put you in? Very. Uh, I mean, I, I do believe that <laughs> I hate to use another scripture, Paula, but <laughs> this is how I rewired my life when I was a kid and destined for failure to think that there is future in, in, in uh, there is a positive future for me. I, I started memorizing scriptures and I would remind myself when I found myself in a hole of what the Bible says about this. And one scripture that's really important is John eight thirty two that basically says the truth will set you free. And so I've, I've committed myself to telling the truth in public life all the time, even when it's painful. And this is a painful truth, you know, that, that sometimes in the current uh, toxic culture of Washington and, and frankly, with the corrosion around the country, being uh, an African-American conservative is a hard place to live. And so you just you, you find yourself in the midst of a toxic environment and you're looking for truth. And, and the truth is that 
our public forum does not lend itself to the type of cohesion that is necessary for the flourishing of the of the human soul and the American soul. And I think that once again, the good Lord has allowed me to to live and breathe and hope during this time to restore hope in the midst of this mm-hmm. chaos and confusion. Because the truth is, in most areas of our lives, the metrics are absolutely undeniably unqualified positive. The truth is that economically our country is healthier than it's probably been in five decades. And that includes the most vulnerable people in our nation. But does the end justify the means, the fact that you said we're at a very toxic moment in our culture, in our government? Is it all worth it? I guess I would suggest that the environment and the culture has been heading this way for more than a decade. When you start studying the dissatisfaction and the disillusionment in our country, mm-hmm. it dates mm-hmm. back to the 80s, not the 90s or the 2000s. And what I'm suggesting is that there are positive metrics and indicators that reinforce the truth that we have been moving in the right direction in many areas and not just economically. I was going to start there and move mm-hmm. to the social change that I've experienced. But the truth is that as an African-American, to see the kind of progress I've seen in my state and in my lifetime, it's unqualified. you got to be giddy about where I, what I saw when I was a teenager going into a high school with race riots uh, as an eighth grader watching my brother come home from a, from a school where there are race riots throughout the low country of South Carolina uh, to, to go to that same school and become the president of the student government. Uh, it, it's in a 70%, 75% white school at the time something like that. So, so to see the progress in so many areas, I, I tell you, I, I get excited about it, but I have to acknowledge that the, the corrosion in the public forum is as bad as it's ever been, but it's been progressively getting worse. Uh, some people want to say it happened in 2016 or 2015, but uh, it, it started a long time. Yeah. And it's not a presidential election cycle, but the fact of the matter is where we are isn't connected to just an election. How do you advise the president on the topic of race? I know um, you spoke out after Charlottesville, after he had some inflammatory things to say about Ilan Omar and um, some of the other women in Congress. You also pushed back. So how do you advise the yes. president on the topic of race? Because you've been to the White House. You've spoken to him directly. Yes, I have. And I will continue to do so. And I'll continue to speak out when I think he's crossed the line that I can't I can't uh, sit on the sidelines silent. Mm-hmm. I, I just try to speak truth to power. I try to tell him when I think he's across the line, why I think he's across the line, and how to get back on the right side of the line. I think he listens to me attentively. I think he uh, follows what I the advice I give him sometimes, <laughs> not always. <laughs> but listen, he's, 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 you know, I always say anyone over three years old, Changing their changing that person's mind in uh, a thirty minute conversation just unrealistic. That's at three, not at seventy three or seventy four. That's at three. So uh, he continues to invite me back. So he he's continue- receptive to you. He is. Uh, I was able to get legislation passed, signed by the president. Criminal justice reform passed and signed by the president. Uh, he actually listens. Uh, I, I do wish sometimes he would tweet less, but that's not going to be something I can control. So what I can control are the legislative priorities that are mm-hmm. part of my opportunity agenda, presenting them to him to help the most vulnerable people. I have a healthy working relationship with the president. And 
Um, I try to use uh, my energy and my efforts to serve the least of these. And I'm working on now projects for rural America, because if you're looking for people who need uh, a strong voice uh, in the halls of power, uh, it's our, our rural folks sometimes lack the kind of momentum that we can bring to bear on problems in inner cities. You've often been asked this. You say that you don't think that the president is racist, but he does. You do think that he is racially insensitive. You've said that. Yes. So explain uh, the explain to... the difference, because some people would say they're the same thing. Well, yeah, they're not even close. I mean, we, we've had we've had institutions of racism in this country, and those are easy to identify. All you have to do is look back. Uh, a person who is racist does not pass and uh, applaud policies that have a disproportionate impact uh, in communities of color. A uh, person who is racist doesn't, for almost all of his life until he ran for president, have folks like Gail King and many others attending events and Oprah and many others having done uh, things with him from a social perspective. It's when he became president and, and frankly, said some things that were quite controversial that folks uh, saw him very differently. But you, you don't you don't wake up mm-hmm. 70 years later and become someone who's a racist. And he has been a counterpuncher all of his life. I knew him before he was president and he was mm-hmm. abrasive and aggressive then. And uh, he doesn't he doesn't take <laughs> to one sided fights. He wants to engage and he does so sometimes in a way that people don't appreciate. And last question for you, Senator Scott, where do you think you'd be if you didn't have your faith to cling to? I would not be having a conversation with anyone about progress. I would be lost as a goose in a rainstorm. Southern for, I don't know where it would be, but it wouldn't be good. Mm. Senator, God bless you. Senator Scott, thanks for taking the time. Put a good word in with the president for us, okay? Maybe he'll come on the podcast, too. <laughs> I'll try my best. Yes, ma'am. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Journeys of Faith. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. And let us know what you think with a rating and a review. Journeys of Faith, it's a production of ABC Audio, produced by Whitney Lloyd, Lewis Millman, Leighton Schneider, and Susie Liu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Paula Ferris.